0: I encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at Mark 9 verses 1 through 13 this morning. Let me read for us this passage. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to your word now, and as we seek to behold Christ in the Scriptures, We pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word this morning. Feed us with words of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I'm guessing that uh, every person in here, maybe not the kids at this point yet, but most of us have had significant moments or events in our lives that at the time, you didn't really grasp. You didn't fully understand that specific event until much later, until after other things had taken place in your life. So you experience something, and and then it's much later on in life, based upon other events, that you're able to look back at that event and begin to understand it, begin to see it for what it actually is. And I think here... Something similar is happening to specifically Peter, James, and John. They're experiencing something extremely profound here in this passage, but it's not until much later that they actually begin to understand the significance of this event. It's not until Jesus rises from the dead that they're able to look back at this event and go, Oh, I get it now. Peter and the disciples, they've confessed jesus to be the christ the messiah we saw that in chapter 8 verses 29 to 30 and jesus then begins teaching them in light of their confession that the messiah is going to be rejected he's going to suffer and die and three days later he's going to rise from the dead and of course we saw peter rebukes jesus for this because for him the messiah could not suffer and die The Messiah was to be a kingly warrior who would bring judgment upon Israel's enemies and establish the kingdom of God. And then, of course, last week we saw that Jesus teaches the disciples and the crowd that not only will the Messiah suffer and die, but that anyone who would bear the Messiah's name must be willing to suffer and die by taking up one's cross and following him. And at the end of his teaching, he warns them. He warns them that if one is ashamed of his sufferings and his humiliation, so he will be ashamed when he returns, not as the humiliated suffering king, but as the risen or suffering servant, but as the risen glorified king. If you are ashamed of the humiliated savior, so the resurrected king will be ashamed of you when he returns. Now, this is important in light of what we're looking at this morning. Jesus has just spoken of his return in glory, and now he's going to give some of his disciples a foretaste of that glory through the transfiguration. And he alludes to this in verse 1 of chapter 9, where he says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, there's been much discussion on what Jesus means by this sentence. Some have argued that it's actually referring to Jesus' return or his resurrection, and some have even argued that it's, it's actually referring to the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. And though it might allude to all of those things in some form, the immediate context demonstrates that he's referring to the next event, his transfiguration. We see that by the the word some. Some of you will not taste taste death before you see the kingdom of God come in power. The other disciples did not see this moment. It was only Peter, James, and John who saw Jesus transfigured. Also, we've seen through Mark's gospel... That the kingdom of God, as we've seen, is, 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 is bound up with the person of Jesus. Because Jesus is the king of his kingdom. In other words, where Christ is, that is where the kingdom is. So when he says the kingdom of God is going to come in power, he's speaking of his own transfiguration. And so he tells them that some of them are going to see this kingdom of God come in power before they taste death. And in verses 2 to 8, we see specifically the kingdom of God come in power through the transfiguration of Jesus. And this is my first point that I want us to see. That the glory of Jesus is revealed in his transfiguration. And there are several ways in which the glory of Jesus is revealed or made known. The first is most obvious, his transfiguration itself, right? Verse 2 to 3, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one could ever bleach them. Luke's account tells us that the appearance of his face changed, and Matthew tells us his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. What's happening here? Well, I think for a brief moment, the veil of Christ's humanity is lifted, and his true essence is revealed. His divinity is made known. The divine glory of the sun rose to the surface and was manifested before these three disciples. Chrysostom said, He disclosed a glimpse of the Godhead. He manifested to them the God who was dwelling among them. See, Jesus gave the three disciples. A foretaste of the divine majesty that will one day be revealed at the return of Jesus Christ. The the transfiguration of Christ was a prelude to his return and glory. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18, he he actually looks back on the transfiguration and connects it to his coming and glory because he begins to understand what the transfiguration was about. And in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18, he says this For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of what? His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is describing what he saw here in Mark chapter 9. So before them, Jesus is transfigured, and the glory of the Son is revealed for a moment and time. Secondly, the glory of Jesus is revealed, not just in his transfiguration, but also in the reality that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, where do I get this? Well, Jesus transfigures before the disciples, but, but then we read two individual, of two individuals appearing. Look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah appear out of nowhere, and they begin having a conversation with Jesus. Now, how this all happened, we don't know. And the point isn't to try to figure out how it happened, but rather why it happened. Why are Moses and Elijah present at Jesus' transfiguration on top of God's holy mountain. Why not Isaiah or Jeremiah? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, there's several possible reasons, and they're probably all correct. Moses and Elijah are the only two prophets who spoke to God on top of a mountain. Both Moses and Elijah suffered at the hands of their own people, but they were then vindicated by God as Christ will also suffer at the hands of his own people and will also be vindicated by God. But the main reason I think they're present is due to what they represent, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophet's. Moses gave the law to the people of Israel, and Elijah called the people back to the law that God had established. And it's interesting that in the last verses of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 4 4-6, both Moses and Elijah are mentioned. There's a call for Israel in that passage to remember the law of Moses the statutes and rules that God had commanded Israel. And God also says that he's going to send Elijah the prophet to turn the people of Israel back to the Lord. And all of this is in the context, all of this is said in in Malachi 4, it's all in the context of the coming of the great day of Yahweh, the Lord. And now, both of these men appear before Jesus, Yahweh, and on this mount, and on this mountain, just as they spoke to God, they are now speaking to Jesus, God in the flesh, on God's holy mountain. See the point I think that Mark is trying to make is that the law and the prophets have found their fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah. Malachi four four to six is becoming a reality. For the great day of the Lord is at hand, because Christ has come. Remember, Jesus did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. The law pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the telos, the goal of the law. All that was in the law and in the prophets find their fulfillment in none other than Jesus, the one who is transfigured before the disciples. This is why after this encounter happens, The disciples look up to discover only Jesus is there. Both Moses and Elijah are gone. John Calvin makes this incredible observation when it is said that in the day they saw Christ alone, this means that the law and the prophets had a temporary glory that Christ alone might remain fully in view. So his glory is revealed in his transfiguration. His glory is revealed in the fact that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Which leads to my third observation. The glory of Jesus is revealed in having a superior glory and exodus than Moses. The glory of Jesus is revealed in having a superior glory and exodus than Moses. One of the things that we've seen in Mark's gospel is that he is trying to demonstrate that Jesus is the greater Israel, for example, in his baptism and also in his temptation. He is tempted by Satan 40 days and 40 nights, but he does not give in. He does not sin like Israel did. But Mark also, I think, wants to demonstrate that Jesus is also the greater Moses, both in his person and in his work. You see, what you have here in this story is, in some sense, a second Mount Sinai. There are parallels. The parallels are everywhere. For example, the mountain setting. Both Moses and Jesus ascend up onto a mountain. There's also the mention of going up the mountain after six days. In Exodus 24, 16, we're told that Moses went up the mountain after six days. Moses and Jesus both took three individuals along. The shining face of Moses, the shining face of Jesus, the cloud that overshadows the mountain, the voice speaking out of the cloud. All of these are similarities to Mount Sinai. See, I think Mark is demonstrating that Jesus is the greater Moses. And this is primarily shown through his person and through his work. See, what happened when Moses came down the mountain? Well, Josh read for us, right? We're told in Exodus 34, 29 to 35, that his face was shining. It's as though Moses was transfigured. Here, Jesus is transfigured and his face shone like the sun. But there's a difference between what happened with Moses and what happens here with Jesus. Moses reflected the glory of God by being in the presence of God. In other words, it was an external power or an external glory that changed his features. Jesus doesn't reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. His face shines from within who he is. He's the great, he's the great, he's greater in his person than Moses. His glory is his own. Moses' glory came from God. But he's not only greater in his person, he's also greater in his work than Moses. Mark tells us that Moses and Elijah are are having a conversation with Jesus, but he doesn't tell us what the conversation is about. But Luke does give us a brief summary of what they're talking about. In Luke 9, 30 to 31, we, we read this about this conversation. And behold, two men were talking with him, that is with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now that word, departure, is actually more accurately translated Exodus. They were speaking with Jesus about Jesus' Exodus, which he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. What is Jesus' Exodus? Well, we read about it or we looked at it a few weeks ago, when Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus' exodus is his suffering, death, and resurrection. And in an exodus, just like in the Old Testament, Jesus will deliver people just as Moses delivered the people of Israel. But Jesus will deliver people from their sins. You see, Moses' Moses' exodus delivered Israel from the oppression and slavery of Egypt. But Moses was not able to deliver Israel from their hardness of heart, their rebellious ways. Despite being delivered from Egypt, they were still prone to give their hearts to Egypt. Moses was not able to change the hearts of the people. But Jesus, through his exodus... He will deliver His people from their sins and condemnation. He will conquer sin and death. He will change the hearts of His people by removing their hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh. Jesus is the greater Moses because He is greater in His person. He has a greater glory than Moses, but also in His work, His exodus. Christ went to the cross, His exodus, to save sinners from their sins, to save from the penalty of sin, which is death. And the Scriptures tell us that all who repent, all who turn and repent of their sins and trust in Him will know this exodus, this deliverance. But you must come to Him. You must embrace Him. You must follow Him just as Israel decided to follow Moses out of Egypt. So Jesus is the greater Moses, both in His person... He is the glory of God and in his work, the greater exodus. Now there's one last point we need to see in regards to the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus is also revealed in God the Father's affirmation of him being his beloved son. And we see this specifically in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.17 that it was God the Father who spoke to the disciples regarding Jesus. As he says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father was speaking to Peter, James, and John and declaring to them, this is my beloved Son. Think about this. Both Moses and Elijah are present. Moses, the greatest of all the prophets, and and Elijah, not far behind. But it's only in regards to Jesus that God the Father says, This is my beloved Son. These other men are incredible servants of God. But Jesus alone is the divine Son of God. He has a glory like no other, for he bears the same essence, the same nature of the Father. And because of who he is as God's Son, the Father exhorts the disciples to do what? To listen to him. This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And friends, the same exhortation is given to each of us from God the Father. This is my beloved Son, listen to to him listen to him for he has the words of eternal life listen to him for he is the resurrection and the life listen to him for he is the light of the world listen to him for he is the bread of life listen to him for he is living water for your thirsty soul listen to him for he is the one who will give rest to your weary souls listen to him for he is my beloved son. Are you listening to Jesus? Are you truly listening to Jesus? It was Jesus who said in John ten twenty seven to 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Calvin said this regarding this command to listen to Jesus. When he enjoins us to hear him, he appoints him to be the supreme and only teacher of his church. It was his design to distinguish Christ from all the rest, as we truly and strictly infer from those words that by nature he was God's only son In like manner, we learn that he alone is beloved by the Father and that he alone is appointed to be our teacher, that in him all authority may dwell. There are so many voices demanding our attention, our allegiance, our time. But friends, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, That means you are one who listens to Jesus and follows him. It means you sit down before this holy book and hear him speak. So the glory of Jesus is revealed in the affirmation of the Father, him being the beloved son of God. So we see the glory of Jesus in his transfiguration, in his fulfillment of the law and the prophets, in him having a greater glory than Moses, and in him, of course, being God's beloved son. The second thing I want us to see this morning is this. Followers of Jesus will share in the glory of the Son and the Father. In verse 5, Peter opens his big mouth, as usual. It tends to be a trend with Peter's. And he says to Jesus in verse five, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter is so excited to see the glory of Jesus. He's eager to make three tents, three tabernacles for them. It's as though he thinks that the consummated kingdom is happening now. Let, let me set up tense for you, Jesus, because the kingdom is coming. You've transfigured before us. And of course he said this because he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. But here's what we have to see. Peter thinks that in light of Jesus being transfigured before him, and in light of Moses and Elijah being there, he thinks that Jesus doesn't have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Let me set up three tents on this holy mountain. And of course, he's terrified, and he doesn't know what he's saying. Which shouldn't surprise us. Anytime an individual enters into the presence of divine glory, they are always terrified in the scriptures. But something interesting happens in verse 7. We're told that a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came from the cloud, who we know to be God the Father. But this cloud, representing God's glory and presence, overshadows the disciples. Luke records for us that, that the cloud overshadowed them and they entered into the cloud itself. What is this cloud well as i said it it's a reference or represents god's glory and presence this cloud is used all throughout the old testament to display god's glory and presence for example the glory of god descended on mount sinai in the form of a cloud when the tabernacle was finished The presence of God filled the tabernacle in the form of a cloud, Exodus 40, 34-35. God also went before Israel by cloud, by by day, and fire by night. When Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand in Acts 1-9, we're told that he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and here the disciples are able to look upon the glory of Jesus and enter into this cloud the very presence of God what is happening i think this is a prophetic picture just as Jesus's transfiguration is a prophetic picture of his return in glory. So the disciples, looking upon the transfigured Christ and entering into the cloud of divine presence, is a prophetic picture of the future that awaits the church of Jesus Christ, where we will gaze upon the beauty of our Lord and rest in his divine presence forever. As Thomas Wydandy explains, The three apostles are no longer merely observers, but active participants within this holy transfiguring event. And thus the cause of their falling on their face being filled with awe and fear. Their awe resided in their entering into this divinely hallowed event, which they could neither fully grasp, nor anticipate its possible frightening consequences. Who can see the face of God and live? Nonetheless, what is being prophetically enacted here is the reality that Jesus' followers, the church, will be taken up into his glory, and this communion with him will be the act by which they will reap the benefits of his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. Is this not the telos, the, the goal of redemption? It's not just that we will have our sins forgiven. It's that we will forever, as Christ's redeemed bride, behold his glory and enter into the very divine presence of God. We will commune with God. And Jesus is giving these three apostles a foretaste of this future reality. Why? Well, remember that Jesus has just taught on his suffering and death. He's taught that his disciples are also going to suffer and die. But he tells them then not to be ashamed, for he will return in glory. It's as though Jesus is seeking to encourage, comfort his disciples in light of what they've been taught, but also in light light of what lays ahead when Jesus enters Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Where he will be crucified. It's as though he wants them to know that his dying is of his own accord. No one takes his life from him. He lays his life down willingly. It's the exodus that he will accomplish at Jerusalem. He wants to comfort them and encourage them, help them see that though there is suffering, though there is death, there is a future glory to come. Now, it's clear that the disciples never fully grasped this until after the resurrection due to their unbelief. But this moment had to have shaped them in possibly ways they didn't realize. But this story is also for us, that regardless of what possible dark days may lie ahead, our story ends in glory where we will forever behold the face of Jesus and rest in the presence of our triune God, and we will live. Followers of Jesus will share in the glory of the Son and the Father. Thirdly, and my final point, despite the transfiguration, Jesus will still suffer and die. And I realize that's obvious to us, but it wasn't to the disciples. After this encounter that they've had on this holy mountain with Jesus, we read in verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. He charges them to tell no one because Jesus knows that they still don't fully grasp what just happened. And we see their lack of understanding in verse 10, right? Where he says, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. See, the disciples still didn't understand that before Jesus' glorification, he would suffer and die. That's why this rising from the dead didn't make sense to them. You see, they believed in the future resurrection of the dead. But they didn't understand that the Messiah would also rise from the dead because he would first suffer and die. What they didn't understand is that the resurrection of the dead, the future resurrection of the the dead, was dependent upon Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus wants them to tell no one what they've seen because they are not ready to share such information because they think Jesus is going to come down this mountain as the king of Israel, not understanding that he's still making his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Now, in light of what Jesus says to them, they ask Jesus a question regarding Elijah. No doubt, also in light of the fact that they've just seen Elijah. Look at verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? It's interesting. The disciples think that the consummation of the kingdom of Israel is imminent, especially after seeing Jesus transfigured and Elijah also there. See, they know that the scribes teach That Elijah must come before the great day of the Lord. The day of God's vindication. The day in which God will deliver Israel from their enemies. They think that the coming of Elijah happens just before this great day. And since they've just seen Elijah, that means they think it's about to happen. In other words, to them, there's no need for the Messiah to suffer. Elijah has come, and now the Messiah is going to reign. And that's why they asked that question. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 12 and 13 with a comment about Elijah, and then a question about the Son of Man. For he says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Of course, referencing Isaiah 53. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. You see, Jesus actually tells them the scribes are actually right in thinking that Elijah must come first. But the scriptures also affirm that the Son of Man will experience suffering and rejection. And so though Elijah comes to restore all things, that is, to call the people to repentance, it doesn't mean that the Son of Man won't suffer. In fact, though the scribes were right that Elijah must come first, they were wrong about who Elijah would be and what would happen to him. This is why Jesus says in verse 13, Elijah has already come. And of course, we know he is referring to John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way of the Lord in Mark chapter 1. John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord. He called the people to repentance. But here's what the scribes didn't understand about Elijah. It wasn't actually going to be the literal Elijah, but it would be John the Baptist who would come in the spirit of Elijah. But they also didn't understand this, that Elijah would also suffer as well. As Jesus says, they did to him whatever they please, as it is written of him. Now it's interesting, there's no reference to the suffering of Elijah in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, they did to him whatever they pleased. Of course, referring to who? Herod and Herodias, as it is written of him. When you read the story of Elijah, Elijah deals with almost the exact same situation. A godless king and a wicked woman in the woman of Jezebel. John the Baptist is dealing with a godless king and a wicked woman woman. The woman of Herodias. Elijah has come. He will suffer and die. They did to him whatever they please. You see, they understood the scribes and the disciples, they understood, understood that Elijah would come, but they didn't understand that Elijah would suffer and die. And just as they were right about Elijah coming, So they were wrong about what would happen when he came. And in the same way, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are right about the coming of the Messiah. You are right that I am the Messiah, but you're still missing the fact that the Messiah will suffer and die and then rise again. Just as you miss the fact that Elijah would suffer and die as well. See, I've given you a taste of my glory through the transfiguration, but that doesn't nullify the fact that I'm heading to Jerusalem to accomplish my exodus. And the glory, disciples, that that you were so amazed by, will only happen if the suffering and humiliation of the cross comes first. And your participation in that glory will only come about if the Son first suffers and dies. See, despite the transfiguration, Jesus is telling the disciples he will still suffer and die. Suffering will precede glory, and the disciples are still learning this process at this time. And quite often, if we're honest, so are we. We expect glory now when Christ promises promises us a cross before the glory. So we've seen the glory of Jesus revealed in several different ways. He's transfigured before them. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's, he's the greater Moses, both in his personhood and in his work. He's also the beloved Father of the Son. We've also seen that we are sharing in the glory of the Son and the Father. Yet despite all that glory, Jesus will still suffer and die. He will accomplish his exodus by which he will redeem the world. And this is why the Father says to each of us, Listen to him. I pray that you will listen to Jesus this very day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of your Son. But we also thank you for the suffering of your Son, by which we are now able to share in his glory. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to truly listen to Jesus. To sit at his feet like Mary and not like Martha. To gaze upon him, to listen to his voice, to receive his word. And to live according to his ways. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.